0: Hello and welcome to the Virgin Gardener podcast, the podcast for everyone who loves gardens and plants and basically all the good things. I'm Letitia McClouf and I'm a journalist, blogger and plant enthusiast. Hello and welcome to everyone here to the Virgin Gardener podcast, recording live from the wonderful town of Thursk. In North Yorkshire, which is the most charming place. Absolutely love it. I am with the wonderful, absolute hero of mine. Oh, stop it. (laughs) Matthew Wilson. So gorgeous. As you know, don't stop it. uh, No, I'll carry on. So uh, he is a garden designer and he's a broadcaster. He's a journalist. He's a husband and he's a father of twins. Mm. And this is part of the podcast Social Club, which is run by the Deer Shed Festival, which you all must attend. I'm told I'm definitely going with my children. Anyway, um, this is my first live podcast. You have to be gentle with me, but Matthew does this kind of thing literally on the regular, don't you? So you don't have have to be as gentle with him. No. So can you take us back to the beginning, Matthew? Tell us how it all started with gardening. What was your routine? For me? Yeah. Oh, gosh.
1: Um, well, I, I, um, I, I suppose I'm an accidental gardener in a way because I certainly had no intention of doing this for a living. I grew up on a, a nursery in Kent. My parents were cut flower growers. They grew things like dahlias and chrysanthemums and um, astromerias. And I remember, I suppose I, I loved... The space that I had around us as a child, I loved the fact that we lived in the country. But as far as I could see, my dad's job was absurd. (laughs) He just seemed to be completely mad. Why? Why Because he never stopped working. He was always work. You know, this is the days when automation in horticulture was only really just beginning. He, my dad had one of the first potting machines in the country, which is a very exciting moment when this potting machine arrived, second-hand from a nursery in Holland, the Dutch having had potting machines for about 10 years, of course. I've had been, ne- so.
0: literally never heard of a potting machine. How well, potting machine
1: uh, it, it is a, a way of automating filling pots with compost. So instead of doing it all by hand, you have a machine that has a big hopper, and you throw your compost into the hopper and the pots go around and they come out full of compost so there you've saved yourself some time and then you put your seedlings in by hand but again of course the next stage is you have a machine that puts the seedlings in as well oh that's the next step yes. and then uh, my, my <laughs> dad but my dad because he was growing chrysanthemums um if if any of you grow chrysanthemums at home you might know that there's you have to give them a a, a short day to instigate flowering. That's why chrysanthemums flower late in the year Um, because as the days get shorter, that that triggers a response in the plant to form the bud to make the flower. So in order to do that in a nursery environment, what you do is you basically go into your greenhouse in the middle of the day and you pull over great big blackout blinds and you shut the light out so the chrysanthemums think it's a short day. I mean, they're perpetually confused plants. It's a real tragedy. (laughs) Um, But that's what gets you your flower. So effectively, you're turning one day into two days by blacking out. My dad used to do all of this by hand. He used yeah. to pull the blinds across by hand. Then that became automated and that got a little bit easier. And so it went. But it still seemed to be um, an absolutely potty way of not making a very very much money.
0: But you, I mean, it doesn't sound as if you were very keen on helping. No, I wasn't. <laughs>
1: I wasn't. I, I was terrible. I mean, I, I, as, a, as a very small child... My father, when I was born, apparently looked at me and said, well, he's not coming down the nursery until he's at least 10. Um, (laughs)
0: Why? Why? What what, what did he see that he didn't think was... An (laughs) inner
1: darkness? I don't know. Um, A a sort of Loki-like mischievous aspect. Um, And at the age of um, about 14 months, I think, I crawled down to the nursery. I don't know how I escaped the house, but I crawled down to the nursery. My dad was disassembling one of the big heating boilers, which was you know, probably as long as a big van. Um, and uh, he'd p- meticulously put all the nuts and bolts on a sheet and labelled every single one. And I just sat there going <laughs>
0: <"Dah-duh-duh-dah-duh-dah-h-dah,">
1: <laughs> muddling them all up. Um, and he then spotted me. Uh, f- um, oh no, th- so that, 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 that was one occasion, that's right. And then the second occasion I, I went down to the nursery. He was up the sa- up a ladder on the same boiler uh, scraping like coke or something out of the, you know, um, that you know, clogs up the inside of the boilers. And I climbed up the ladder after him. And he just turned around and went, get down, yeah, as like, you would. And, and I just let go. <laughs> and unfortunately, I bounced, as you do when you're quite little.
0: But nevertheless, it sounds like you've come from proper, haughty, haughty stock.
1: Yes. When, I mean, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah.
0: it's not like, I mean, what am I trying to say? You knew things, as what I'm trying I, to say, is that you yes, knew things from
1: an early age. I knew things, I guess, and I also, I think, I would say I had an appreciation of the outdoors and an appreciation of growing, I guess. And I do remember, actually, um, as a very, well, probably age about seven or eight, maybe, um, going with my father during the summer holidays to Covent Garden Flower Market when it was still at Old Covent Garden, yeah. which of course now is a shopping precinct.
0: Gosh, you're really old. I'm ancient. <laughs> I
1: am ancient. Uh, I think it was about a year before they turned it into a shopping precinct. Actually, anyway. Um, <laughs> and I remember, you know, the great excitement of getting up at two o'clock in the morning and getting in the van with my dad and 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 these long boxes of. Uh, chrysanthemums, which were meticulously—you know—I used to go into the packing room sometimes, and they, 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 you had these big boxes, and the flowers were all laid, you know, end to end, and e- each individual stem was—I mean—it was a real work of art. And of course, you know, the flower industry in Britain um, has almost disappeared. There is a resurgence, to be fair, um, and there's—you know—people like the wonderful Georgie doing her thing, and others.
0: Georgie Newbury, was yeah, talking about common brilliant. farm yeah. flowers, yeah,
1: but. You know, compared with how it was, say, in the 50s and 60s, it's a fraction of where it was because the vast majority of flowers that we buy from a petrol station or a supermarket or wherever it might be mm. uh, are grown in Africa. Absolutely. So, you know, anyway, so I, I had very fond memories of that aspect of childhood, but it didn't, it didn't encourage me to go into the industry.
0: So What did? I mean, how did you... Uh, well, I... Unemployment,
1: bridge. basically. <laughs> um, I, I, got a, I got a job. I, first, I, st- I left... Well, first of all, I was expelled from school. Why? Um, why,
0: why? No, come on. Why?
1: Uh, what did you do? It was more what I didn't okay, do. Okay, what did you not do? Uh, I didn't do anything. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. We'll and, move and then they
1: just kind of ran out of patience with me, basically. Um, <laughs> and so... And I think I, t- I took an extended period off uh, possibly to find myself. No, I think it was to do with music. Um, music's always been a big part of my life, and I, I, that, that was, I think I took some time off to do something musical, and then when I went back, they were kind of like, uh, why are you here? Um, because,
0: you know, I do think you'd be a good rock star. What?
1: Well, um, aging rock star of it. living in living in, a, of it there. Li- living in a slightly run down <laughs> mansion somewhere. Oh. Well, I did have oh, a, I, I did probably. have a scrape with it. Um,
0: you did? Yes,
1: I did. I did. I did. I did. Um,
0: oh, come on, spill.
1: Well, I mean, this is the reason why I had such a de- desperate early career, really, because I, um, I, at about the age of f- f- fourteen, fifteen, discovered. Uh, Discovered music. Discovered that I, I I used to sing in a in a church choir when I was little, mm. you know. And then my voice broke, and I forgot about singing, mm. um, and I, I assumed I probably couldn't sing. And when I opened my mouth, this weird strangulated squawk came out, <laughs> and I kind of gave up. And then uh, uh, I went to um, a friend of mine um, had a had a gig, and I and he was he was in a band with a lot a lot of older guys. So he was about 15, and the rest everyone else was about 18. And I went along to this gig, and I thought. I can sing better than that guy. I know I can. Oh. And so I, I sort of put my hand up at the end and said, I can sing better than your singer. Oh my God. And, um, and uh, it was the singer's band, so that didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> anyway, cut a long story short, I, I ended up in, in, a, in a sort of two-piece synth pop group with my mate Simon. No. This is in the days when synth pop was a big thing in the early 80s. And oh, please
0: tell me there's a YouTube...
1: Uh, yeah, there. Yes, There, there okay, is. Okay, name. Yeah, there is, Come there is. on. So well, so we see. we were called. We, it was a very clever name actually, because there were only two of us. We were called Almost Alone. Do you see what oh, we I did I love there? it
0: so much. And you? Yeah, know. It's, this it's strong, is, isn't, this isn't it? This is gold. I love it so much.
1: And uh, and we we you know we were on the on the fringes, I would say, of making. We released a single. We we recorded in uh in the studio owned by uh vince clark who was found a oh. member of depeche mode and then erasure and various other bands and and we you know sat and chatted to vince and he mixed our record for us and you know we, yeah i mean it was um it was a great time we we did a lot of gigs we were on sky tv we did, you know okay, early days so
0: you 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 made it
1: well, we didn't really make it, though, did we? Because I'm sitting here talking to you now about gardening. <laughs> no, and come about on, this is a terrible step down. Well, so,
0: I, I should be. So, uh, what's her name, Lauren
1: Averb? Well, no, no, you're lovely. No, don't. I'm lovely. Lauren. Okay, well, don't just we'll gloss over that. So what happened was, um, it didn't. It didn't quite happen. And yeah. after sort of five, six years of putting my life on hold, I just actually, do you know what? I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very poor. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, living above a pub uh, and working in the pub to make ends meet while I try and make... And, you know, I think if you're... I think everyone, if you've got a passion like that, you should follow it. Yes. But equally... Until if, you start until to you, starve. Yeah, until you start to starve. <laughs> and I was at that point where yeah. I was starting to starve. And so that's when I, um, I had a conversation with a bloke in the pub and started my new career as a journalist
0: okay which i
1: basically just made up on the spot so i met this guy in a pub who was who was a journalist for a a renowned national newspaper um very very highly respected called the sun and (laughs) uh and i i and i blagged my way into a uh, a freelance job on the bizarre column which is the showbiz column i know the bizarre column yes And I was just, I was, uh, and and in those days, Kelvin McKenzie was the editor of the paper, mm-hmm. and the editor of the Bazaar column was a, a little-known journalist called Piers Morgan. Oh my and, God! Um, <laughs> and I and I worked for Piers Morgan I, on and off for two years, never full-time. I was o- only ever a freelancer. And so, it,
0: what did that involve? Going to parties and uh, trying to catch the uh, people. Just in
1: really, really boring stuff, actually. I mean, I remember. Um, Really mundane stuff, I remember this chap um, uh, uh, what, do you, you may remember but you 're ter- terribly young, you see unlike me terribly young. the Brit awards, and Prince won a Brit award, and he went up on stage and of course, Prince being very little, and he went up on stage with his bodyguard, who was massive and gray haired and with a long gray beard <laughs> and was you know like two meters tall or something and um, and his bodyguard passed away not long after that, he was quite an old, oldish chap. And so I was asked to pull up all the, the, the cuttings on uh, prints and write a little, like, one-paragraph story about his bodyguard. Ridiculous. And this was the day, days of physical cuttings. There was a cuttings room in the building. Yeah. It was physical cuttings. And I phoned up the cuttings room and said, can you send me everything on prints? And they sent me everything on prints, and Prince Charles, and <laughs> prince, prince Andrew, and, prince, oh, and their trolleys the of stuff came up. <laughs> All the princes, yeah. But it was mad. You know, there, there, we, there was a... a a guy who used to a woman who used to ring up regularly to claim that she was having an affair with George Michael. That's I mean, right. now we know that that would have been an extremely <laughs> unlikely scenario, really not, but she no. would phone every day. There was somebody else who who used to phone, and it was when the backstreet boys were big it's just so long ago, it's hilarious. <laughs> it was like anyone under the age of twenty five going backstreet boys google that <laughs> the um, about? Yeah, they're on a renaissance now, aren't they <laughs> but uh, yeah she, she and she would make all these outrageous claims about the backstreet boys, but anyway that That's, ended
0: that is fascinating but it's still not gardening no
1: d- didn't that ended i'm going to speed up now as well because i did a lot of, <laughs> no, so but then it's i it's I
0: been pretty meteoric hasn't it because you that must that doesn't leave you very much time to become curator
1: no, of of two of rhs two gardens H- okay. yeah harlow car just down the road in harrogate Um, and Hyde Hall in Essex.
0: How did that happen?
1: So uh, basically the the journalism, so so what happened was 1989, 1990, and the last big recession, and all the freelance work because the sun was just a very small part of it. I was writing articles for practical computing, for example, which was great. I knew nothing about computers Successful at sewing. all. So I would, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was. I was doing gig reviews for the NME, which that was quite That's good fun, fun, but it didn't pay very much. And that all dried up and I was at a loose end and my dad by this point was running a big garden in Kent, a uh, privately owned estate, and I went to work for him and I was doing really mundane stuff. I was trimming and picking strawberries and, you know, all sorts of stuff, um, really Would boring Would you regard
0: stuff. that as a slight sort of, now I'm learning? Did you did you kind of go into it thinking I'm going to learn I'm going to really learn how to do this?
1: No, I thought it was a massive come down. I was like L- last week i was standing outside Dusty Springfield's house, yeah, okay. and now I've got st- I've got strawberry juice on my fingers. <laughs> like, admittedly, I was standing outside Dusty Springfield's house while she shouted through the letterbox, "Go away, I don't want to talk to the sun." Um, uh, fair enough, as well. Who would? Um, so, um, I, but but then I then something clicked I think, and, and it was I think it was this, um being outside. As yeah. much as anything else, you know, and well, I think
0: they do say it's that when you're close to the earth, something actually happens in your brain. I mean, absolutely, it, it does make you feel happy, doesn't it?
1: From a mental health perspective, it's been widely uh, observed now in all sorts of reports how good gardening is for your mental health. I also think there's something in in our, the world in which we live in now, where everything seems so ephemeral. Mm. and everything's fast moving and it's all about instant gratification one of the most fabulous aspects of gardening is A, it teaches you patience you know, if you're planting a, a bulb tomorrow, you can go home and plant you know, 50 tulips tomorrow uh, you do not get instant gratification from no, that. No, you do not. Uh, if you plant a, a tree tomorrow Well, you tomorrow,
0: do, because you've planted them because
1: you, they, yes. Exactly, and that's, that's the other aspect actually, so there's not instant gratification on one level but as um, one of the gardeners I worked for, a very old, experienced gardener who was hilarious because he kind of made stuff up all the time uh, to cover any deficiencies in his knowledge. So rather than... It's just hilarious. So he, he once... <laughs> he once said to me... Uh, this was in a public garden. Hever Heaver Castle in Kent. one of my first early gardening jobs. And he said to me... Um, he said... Now then, boy. Um, if anyone asks you a plant name and you don't know the uh, the full name, you just stick japonica on the end, and everybody's <laughs> happy. <laughs> That's brilliant. And I remember once seeing Such sort of. That's good advice. Yeah, and I remember walking up on him once, and, and he was he was talking to some American visitors, um, who I, I think had said something along the lines of because Hever Castle is quite a diminutive castle famous for being Anne Boleyn's birthplace. And this this loud Texan drawl sort of came out. Call that a castle? It's smaller than my garage, <laughs> um, and uh, but, it, 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 he, but then I walked up as he was explaining to them that the best way to make your cucumbers really sweet was to water them with sugar water. I mean, he was a rapscallion of, of the highest order. He really was.
0: He sounds wonderful. He I want him on my podcast. And he, uh,
1: yeah, I'm not even sure he's, he may. You may have to disinter <laughs> him de- possibly. Departed. I don't know, okay. but um, he. Uh, I can't remember I can't even think of how I got on to talking you about had, him
0: I was talking about how when you were get, getting on these amazing jobs that you suddenly seem to have just acquired oh yes how, so, how were you doing well you were, uh, you, you were learning your trade and then yes. suddenly you're the head of everything I how know did that
1: happen? well so I was doing that job at Hever Castle and then the head gardener for various reasons had to take some time off and and I I, I was kind of around and available. And I accidentally became the temporary head gardener. And, um, uh, and uh, then I saw this job um, for curator of the RHS garden at Hyde Hall. And I didn't really know anything about Hyde Hall. Um, and I, I, didn't, I felt, well, the RHS, you know they're, they're never going to employ me. I mean, I had, like, at that point, I think about three years experience on top of my time at college. So I was really green around the gills. And I went for the interview, and to my astonishment, they offered me the job. And, and retrospectively, I, I asked my boss, why? Yes. You know, I mean, on paper, I, I must have been a really yes. weak candidate. And she said, it, it wasn't the, the experience side, they knew that I would gain.
0: Mm.
1: What they wanted was somebody who would go in and shake things up. Okay who would put a different perspective on things and who wouldn't look at the, the the garden really didn't have that garden didn't have a much of a direction at that time and one of the things that I brought to that garden was a a direction which I think it still has to its to this day which is as a garden of the landscape one which is very environmentally forward thinking um uh, you know, low water use, because Essex is an incredibly dry part of the country. Yeah. Uh, you know, the average annual rainfall at Hyde Hall is lower than Jerusalem, Rabat, Tunis, and Beirut. So technically a desert under World Health Organization terms. So, I mean, it's properly dry. And so, so lots of challenges around that. And I, I just kind of... I don't know I just, I just i guess i said the right things in the interview and then i said the right things and did the right things in the job and i i loved it there and i learned my gosh my brain was expanding like uh, like several sons at that time it was an yeah. extraordinary you know the one the brilliant thing about being employed by an organization like the rhs is that it's a it's a charity that is very much about learning and so you as an individual learn i mean you know they're keen on obviously everybody learning about gardening and the benefits of gardening but I learned so much my plant knowledge went through the roof mm. and I was living on site so every evening I'd finish work and then I would get my notebook out my camera and a beer and I'd walk around the garden and I'd look at plants and I'd and I'd look at nature and I'd look and I'd and I'd begin to understand and this is a, I think a really fundamental point for anyone interested in plants and nature and gardening it's it's one thing to look at things in isolation. It's part of the reason why I get fed up with the way in which gardening is sometimes presented in the media as being less than the sum of its parts. You know, mm. Here's a petunia in a pot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, what about the fact that, that you know, here's a plant that in its wild environment you know, grows in the Caucasus where it thrives in fast-draining soil and uh, doesn't require feeding or watering or anything else. And here's another plant from New Zealand, which grows in very similar conditions. And if you put the two together, you've got, you're have got you starting to build a community of plants yeah. that want to grow together. That's what's interesting about yeah. it. Um, and then you see you start to see invertebrates visiting those plants, even though one's from the Caucasus and one's from New Zealand. They're not from here, but it doesn't matter to them because they can get the pollen and nectar from them regardless. So I started to make all those connections, and it all became really exciting for me. And... Um, I think that was expressed in the work that I did in that garden, and and stays with me now. It really formed who I am as a as a gardener, and then laterally as a garden designer.
0: And so, yeah, I do want to talk of, talk about garden design because that you know you've got a massive portfolio now behind mm. you of, of of lots and lots of gardens that you've designed, and I I wonder because you know you're telling me that you got these wonderful you got to this. You know, you, you had this meteoric rise in, in, in the horticultural world. Um, I'm sure it was Now
1: it's slowed down you, to molasses in winter. I'm sure it wasn't just <laughs>
0: blagged. I'm sure no. you... But, um, but I, I want to ask you, when you do work with clients, mm. there is... There's a lot that, uh, that has to be... That you have to be very persuasive, and you have to be quite charismatic, don't you, in order to get them on board...
1: Yes, well, I think, every, I think different designers work in different ways, and I think this is a really interesting aspect of garden design. Some designers can be really dogmatic, and the client, if the client is willing to entertain that dogmatic approach... People
0: lo- some people like some that. Some people love yeah. that. They like you know? to be told what to and do. And there's
1: all sorts of factors in, in... Yeah, but then there's all sorts of factors in why people appoint a garden yeah. designer.
0: Yeah,
1: And in some instances, as was explained to me uh, by a, a, an architect the other day, um, I went to meet some very highfalutin clients, and he said to me afterwards, "Well, of course, you know, part of the uh, part of their appointment criteria would be based around willy waving." What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? Showing off to your mates.
0: Winnie waving. Willy waving. Is that? i have no idea i love it though willy, willy waving, waving. Yeah. i'm gonna use that it's
1: kind of you know i've got a big willy look at me you know oh willy, mean, waving. willy waving i thought yeah. you were saying no <laughs> not willy waving i've got literally you
0: heard right yeah I willy waving of or No. or something like that no okay willy, yeah
1: look at me willy I, waving got i got it, this yes. guy okay, i know what, know what that is i'm not i don't i, I don't, <laughs> i'm not sure anyone's gonna wave their willy about me anyway but um going back so so some, some clients will take the dogmatic approach. I because I think I came from gardening and practicalities, I am a much more pragmatic. Uh, my approach is much more pragmatic. Mm. Um, and I have clients who, I would say, like to be involved in the process rather than clients who just say, "Get this done, I don't want to know anything about it. give it back to me, finished and shiny and lovely. Right. So I would say the majority of people that I work with, Really want to come along for the ride yes. and enjoy the ride as much as the end product. Yeah, and for me personally, that's fantastic most of the time. Not always, most of the time is brilliant because. So, but that
0: means you can't ha- you don't have a style, do you? You are you you are influenced by your clients' wishes
1: to an extent. Um, yes, I mean I, I would say that my I, if I do have a style, I would say I have a well. The stylistic aspects of what I do are is that my gardens tend to be very planty. Yeah, I don't do minimalist. Um, so, so plants are a big feature of the gardens that I design. And I would struggle. If I went to uh if I went if I had a client meeting and and the client said, I'm really not into plants, I want it to be all hard landscape, I would struggle (laughs) with that. Um so plants are very much a big big feature of how I design, and those plants tend to be largely used in, and I hate the term, but it's good shorthand, a naturalistic way. So at the moment I've got a big project in Northumberland, which is um, half an acre of, of uh, naturalistic perennials and, and a big water feature and a rill and all sorts of lovely stuff. Um, I've got several projects in, in Yorkshire which tend to be in the, that sort of more natural way, more landscapey way. I do projects in London and, and I do city gardens, um, but they tend to be quite different in the way that they play okay. out.
0: And what about trends? Do you do you entertain them? Are they are they? I mean, I know well, that magazines and the media have yeah. to and have to use them because otherwise, what the hell did they write about? Yes. But um, but what about you as a designer?
1: Um, I suppose I mean, no one's entirely immune to, to trends. Um, I'm. Not, I think. I think partly what I would say is is that stylistically, I've probably developed. As a person, as I've gone along, you know, when I was at college, I you know, if it didn't have flowers on it, I wasn't interested. Mm. Mm. And now I, I'm much more interested in textures and shapes and forms. And, um, you know, I'm more likely to get excited about the shaggy bark on a heptacodium than I ever was, you know, 30 years ago, let's say because those, those aspects are more important. So I would say i probably use a lot more in the way of structural plants and shrubs now than I did 10 years ago, let's say. Right. Um, uh,
0: I, is, there, is, there a, is there a kind of group of plants or a, a set of kind of principles that you go back to again and again because they work? How do you avoid kind of st- staying in a, in a rut, like going back well, to the same thing?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question because I think it's very easy to get stuck in a rut as a designer because one of the things that you can do all too often is you end up you know, recycling thoughts because you're under pressure. You know, Oh, I've got to get this done by mm. Monday, whatever it is. And um, you just think, right, okay, I know if I, I can take that and I can use that from that point. And that's, that's a dangerous place to be. You know, and I, I try and respond to every single job individually. The most important aspect of any garden when it comes to design is that ultimately gardens are for people. So you have to design them with people in mind, and you have to design them with the the end user, the client in mind, and and work around that. But I would say if there's an overarching trend, going back to the trends thing, it would be, I would say, every garden. No, that's not quite right. I would say eight out of ten of the gardens I've designed over the last um, couple of years have had a potager-style kitchen garden in them. I would say that's o- overwhelmingly... People don't want a kind of allot- allotment-style kitchen garden because they're ugly to look at. Yeah. They want that, a, that beautiful potager that combines, you know, espalier fruit trees and stepovers with cut flowers and herbs and, and growing, but they don't, you know, so they want to grow enough food to feed 20 families they they, so they
0: don't have staff no exactly so which is really yeah i
1: know why don't we have staff so annoying um so so that 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 i think is definitely a trend um and you know uh, awareness of composting and recycling and all of those sort of things and be and 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 using up-to-date ways of composting, you know, using hop composting rather than just the old-fashioned open bins, for example. You know, So I would say that's definitely a feature mm. of pretty much all the gardens that I've designed, with the exception of... Well, even London, uh, London Gardens, a lovely garden in Highbury, which has got a beautiful Pottershire garden in it.
0: And so for any kind of budding garden designers out there who, who might be listening, I know some people, but um, how do you... Have you got any top tips about persuading a client to, to sing from your hymn sheet? If they've got ideas that are you feel are totally not.
1: Um, I try... Well, I, I, I would say I try and be...
0: Or do they just always say, oh, yes, Matthew, that's fine. Sometimes, they
1: do. <laughs> Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. Sometimes there are instances where... I, I, I get some resistance or people can't quite understand why things are a certain way. And then when, I, when, when they do get built correctly and planted correctly as per my design and I go back and the client then says, oh, this is really good, isn't it? So, I don't, and, I, and I'll just very sweetly say, it's almost as if someone designed it.
0: <laughs> very good.
1: <laughs> you know, and, and this, is, this is the interesting, I think, um dichotomy in 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 gardening is that if you are a professional in the industry um we we, you know you are in an industry where there are there are apparently six million or so keen hobby gardeners in the uk so if you're a professional there's an overwhelmingly huge number of people who do it for fun
0: yeah. Right. And they're not quite aware of what it takes to be a professional. Are no. They?
1: And equally, so if I, if you were interviewing me as a brain surgeon, mm. there wouldn't be six million keen hobby brain surgeons out there
0: <laughs> who've I all really got, hope not. who've all got a
1: flipping opinion about brain surgery, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> yes. And the the reality is that you know, as a professional, as somebody doing it for a living, you know, far be it from me to say this. I'm right. (laughs) I respect your opinion, but I'm right. Uh, You know. Okay,
0: Okay, which brings me very, very well onto um, Gardner's Question Time, which I do want to talk to you about because, um, well, you've been doing it for about a decade now, haven't you? I've
1: been doing it for a decade, yes.
0: And uh, just take me through... I mean, it doesn't sound like you're someone who... Doubts yourself very much, but just when, just just if it was me and I got that call, I'd be like, "There's no way I could do that."
1: Um, well, I think you 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 could. No, I couldn't. <laughs> okay. no, go on. Anyway, go on. No, we're talking about you. Well, okay. There's, well,
0: uh, what happened when you got the call? Did you think yes, perfect, excellent? That's for me. Um, I can do that.
1: I, I don't. I I think I was very flattered because. Being involved in Gardner's Question Time, you're you're very conscious that you're effectively a uh, you know you're contributing to something which has been going now for over seventy years. Is one of the years yeah ago. one of the longest running radio programs in the world, um, and you are following in the footsteps of people like Jeffrey Smith, Jeff Hamilton, Roy Lancaster, Nigel Colburn. You know a legends. host yeah a host yeah. of legends yeah. and and the current panel is full of legends. You know, Pippa Greenwood, Bob Flowerdew, Anne Swithinbank. You know, I mean, so it's, it's populated by living legends. Yeah. And to be a part of that is a truly exceptional thing and, and, uh, and a great honour. Um,
0: tell me what it was like, that first recording. I mean, uh, please tell me you had some butterflies. Oh, yeah,
1: and I do <laughs> every time I record. You do? I, oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think if you didn't have that, then you wouldn't... Um, you wouldn't give your best performance, I, I, I don't think. And it is a performance. You know, the, the purpose of Garner's Question Time is to inform, but it's also to entertain. Yeah. And if we're not entertaining, then we're not informing because people are switching off. And it's amazing the people who listen to the programme, which I'll come to in a minute after I answer yeah. your question. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, yeah, the first one was quite nerve-wracking. And actually, it was under the the previous... Uh, production company rather than the current one. And the previous uh, producer was very rigid on time, so there was a red light that would come on if you spoke oh for too God. long. And so you'd how, end up sort of fixating it? on this red light. <laughs> um, uh, but it's a lot more relaxed now. Although we, t- we try and, you know, we re- normally record... So we recorded... Um, uh, we recorded on Monday, for example, in Dudley at the, uh, the Black Country... Uh industrial museum, which is where they've filmed Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders. Um and um uh which was quite cool. And we recorded there on Monday, and I think that show goes out next Friday. So it's quite a fast turnaround, you know. It's and we try and record as live, so we keep it keep it quite tight. Um so it is it is a, a, a lot uh a lot more relaxed now. I feel a lot more relaxed doing it, having done it for, for a decade. Um, and, you know, you pick up tricks along the way. So, if, for example, if I'm if i if I'm being asked a question that I genuinely think I have no idea...
0: Because you, you don't know the question. Of course.
1: No, we don't know the questions in advance, no. So, in the it, old I days... I mean,
0: I'm sure a lot of people think that you do. Probably
1: do, yeah. So, up until 1992... When it went outside of the BBC and began began to be um, produced by independent production companies, up until then the panelists were sent the questions in advance. They were. They were. Okay. Um, and they were, they were obviously able to prep their answers. Mm. Now we we literally know if we find out in the moment as the question is asked, that's the first time we've heard it. Oh, uh, that
0: would terrify me. Keeps
1: you on your toes. It's really good. So for your for your mental. Um, ability and your capacity to think quickly and think on your feet yeah it's, it's brilliant it's really good i mean I, I hope to be doing it for many no many years Alzheimer's because, for you. well i hope not i you hope you
0: don't it, need to do any sudoku do you? i don't <laughs> just as well because i can't
1: do sudoku <laughs> but you learn little tricks as well so for example if i'm if if, if i really don't know the answer to a question um, which will normally be something about veg or house plants. Um, <laughs> he I, says I, with I, disdain. Yeah, well, because I just don't really. Yeah, anyway, I, I'll have my pad in front of me and I'll just furiously scribble stuff down, mm. in the hope that whoever's chairing it, whether it's Kathy or Peter, won't catch my eye. <laughs> <laughs> but on occasion, the rotters will just say, "Matthew." So, <laughs> problem with beetroots. Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks very much for that. But and then um, what?
0: You just have to riff off. You have to you just, just dredge do your best. Up.
1: Or sometimes there are occasions where, you know, I, I will say, and I can probably say over the 10 years, there's probably been three or four of these occasions where I've said, I don't know.
0: I have no idea. Yeah.
1: And that's perfectly yeah. fine as well. It's fine. You know, I remember very I mentioned Roy Lancaster earlier. He's a wonderful chapman, an absolute legend.
0: He's beyond.
1: Beyond the legend. Yeah. And I remember very early in my career with the RHS, I went to a talk by him called um, Plants, Places, People, I think it was called. It was brilliant, really entertaining. And, and it was making those connections between, you know, one of the things I think is wonderful about plants and so important about plants is the way that they connect us to people. So in my own garden, I've got um, a daffodil called Cedric Morris, which Beth Chateau gave to me. Um, uh, who, and she, she mentored me early in my career, and that means a lot to me. Yeah. I've got plants from my my late mother's garden, I've got plants from my wife's late mother's garden, I've got plants that friends have given me, I've got plants from all around the country that I've collected along the way, and they all mean something because of where they've come from, and I think that's a a really, really powerful aspect of, of what we can do in our own gardens. I think it's
0: a very personal thing, and it, 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 I was going to say, is, uh, is something like Gardeners' Question Time even relevant when we have Google? We could just ask them. Well, yes, it, and of course, because everything, Alexa.
1: everything on Google is absolutely correct, isn't it?
0: But, but, but there's uh. nothing, you know, there, there's nothing better than getting someone's personal opinion on something.
1: Yes, I think what Gardeners' Question Time does really well is it gives it can give you we don't always have it's not always all three panelists that will answer a single question because if one panelist gives a sort of definitive answer then the chair will just say actually that's fine you know you've but you've got literally you know chapter and verse there we don't need to ask anybody else but often you'll get three slightly different opinions or three different approaches to the same problem so for example you know we're often asked about Pernicious weed problems, for Mm. example, you know it might be mare's tail or Japanese knockweed or whatever, and there's often more than one approach to dealing with that. Yeah, you know the classic. Everyone wants to know, you know, what to do about slugs and snails. Everyone wants to know about slugs and snails, Um, and again, there is only really one method of dealing with slugs and snails, but there's lots of different opinions about how you can do that. You know.
0: that, I I'm glad you said that because I did want to ask you I mean I do about listen to Gardens. I, <laughs> I want to ask you about uh, so called kind of ungreen methods of dealing yeah. with certain things, the use of glyphosate, the yeah. use of slug pellets, all that kind of thing. Do you think that the BBC and other than the tele organizations should be taking a stand there and, and telling I don't know Is it Bunny Guinness who's always telling people to use glyphosate? I don't have an opinion on this, by the way. Well, yes, Bunny
1: Bunny has has her own distinct views on things like the use of glyphosate. We're not employees of the BBC as panellists, so we're not representing the BBC, we're representing our own views.
0: But you still have a responsibility, We still have a
1: responsibility, absolutely. And I would say that, as as there are nine of us on the panel, uh, I would say the vast majority of us um, would always recommend a non chemical approach to gardening. Mm. Um, you know, um, Bunny will give an alternative view. She's in the past got into terribly hot water about shooting squirrels. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, she has
0: a, shock
1: a, a You know, and she's, she's, she is prone I to the odd, her. you know, non PC outburst. You know, there's a <laughs> when she described Akebia quinata as Black Man's Willy. <laughs> Is, you know, um, this is my second mention of the word "willy" in one program. That's I do. Really not for good. those of uh, there'll ne- need to be like a, a sort of uh, uh, parental advisory thing at the front. Yeah, I do apologise. <laughs> um, so, you know, but um, to get back to your your point, yes, I do think we have a responsibility actually, because I think there's now so much evidence um, that glyphosate causes health issues. I think there's so much evidence that neonicotinoids. Um, uh, there is a connection between that and th- between the use of those chemical that chemical group and bee decline and bee hive collapse. Mm. You know we do have a responsibility, but we're in extraordinary times, of course, with um, uh, you know the promulgation of fake news um, and, you know, I, I, I was listening to Sasha Baron Cohen give a, give a speech yesterday on receiving an award from the Anti-Defamation League and, he, and he, he the analogy he uses is truly shocking actually, but actually makes you think that under Facebook's current approach to political advertising, they would have let Goebbels run adverts about the Jews on Facebook as a platform and not challenge them until later down the line. Yeah. That is... These are crazy yeah. times we're Very living in, Very crazy times.
0: I mean, do you think that the, garden, the gardening industry is doing enough um, to... You know, well, to perpetuate custodianship of planet Earth right now? I mean, because I don't think they are. I don't think things are moving fast enough. I think...
1: I've always believed that gardening, fundamentally, is a benign activity. At the, at well, it's, it's not
0: benign if you're spraying glyphosate everywhere. And, and, um, no,
1: that's true. That's true. But I don't think many people do... I, I genuinely don't think that that many people do anymore. I think, I think the majority of people... I mean, I, I, I go and talk to gardening groups and, and, and so on about this sort of thing, and I, I, get, I get them all to uh, stand up at the end and, and chant, I love aphids, <laughs> um, which is a tricky one for, for gardeners to do, one. but you have to love aphids. Why? Well, if you don't have aphids in your garden, you will not have the things that eat aphids, right? Much. So you're then in this perpetual circle of having to intervene in your garden. And to me, having to make those kind of interventions in one's garden is awful, it's boring, and, yeah. it's, and it's perpetual motion because you can't keep those things out of your garden. So then you have to look for a balance. Uh, You know, going back to slugs and snails, for example, I got fed up with my hostas just being demolished all the time. So
0: don't have hostas. So I
1: don't grow them, exactly. I grow ferns instead. Yeah. Where I used to grow hostas, now I grow ferns. Yeah, same. So, and, 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 you know, there's all of those sort of practical approaches. I wrote a book 15 years ago called New Gardening, How to Garden in the 21st Century, which was entirely focused at... Um, new ways of gardening and trying to garden with nature in mind and, and with climate, climate change, change in yeah. mind and there probably hasn't been enough follow-up to that there were a couple of books around that time that, that sort of promulgated similar thoughts mm. but you know climate change s- seems like this really quite shockingly uh, un- you know unimaginable thing that none of us can deal with um, and the reality is we can't deal with the big issues we, we can't deal with uh, Chinese factory emissions. Of course we can't. But that doesn't mean that we as individuals shouldn't make our own effort. Even if it feels as if we're, you know, fighting, um, you know, fighting a, you know as, as if we're canute in the, in, the, in the waves trying to hold back the tide, it doesn't matter because if enough of us all, I, and I'm a passionate believer in this, so that enough of us all do something good, yeah. it does have an impact. Yeah. So however small that might be, it doesn't really matter. So... For example, upcycling things, um, you know recycling is an interesting one because my my definition of recycling is that we 've gone from uh, throwing everything in one bin and forgetting about it to throwing things yeah. in five bins and forgetting about it you <laughs> agree, know so agree. I, I think yeah. actually minimizing your use up front is is a really important thing um, you know we, we We now have at our local market we we live very close to a market town called Uppingham in Rutland and, and in the market every friday is the refillable lady.
0: I love the sound of the, the refillable,
1: refillable lady. lady, and she has <laughs> she has shower gel and she has uh, cleaning products in huge vats, and you take your little thing along, and she fills it up. I love her. It's brilliant, the refillable That's very lady. That's
0: good. I like her.
1: And that that small thing. So we we last year I got a uh, hot composter, I got a, a wormery, and I started actually paying attention to my compost heap.
0: Okay. Um, can you, Give okay. me some tips on the hot composter. A lot of people ask yep. me a lot of questions because I got a hot composter, and it was like, and it is like, having—I don't know if anyone here has a hot composter. It's like having an incredibly picky child to deal with. That's how I see it. Right. Give me your tips. How do you keep? It <sighs> how do you keep happy? the heat in there? Yeah. How do you keep it happy?
1: Well, um, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not—I'm not sure that I, I'm, my, my method may well have pitfalls along the way. But so far, it's been all right. So I, uh, lots of air, air at the bottom, so mm. stacks of twigs to keep it nice and open at the bottom so the air can get in, because unlike a cold compost heap, a hot composter works on the bacteria vibrating. That's where the heat's coming from. The bacteria, as they, as they devour the waste, are mm. vibrating at very, very high speed, and, and that's what makes it hot, basically. Um, not putting too much in of a single thing, Not putting things in layers. That's a big mistake.
0: You have to mix You have to mix
1: it in. And you have to use the bulking agent stuff. You do. And you have to use shredded paper.
0: Yeah, so it's quite a lot of work.
1: It is quite a lot of work.
0: It's nothing to be sniffed at. and It's not like you can just, like with your normal compost heap, you can just go and do all your pruning and chuck it on the compost heap. No. You have to... Wait for that little bit and cut yeah. it up fine and add this and that. And it's not it's nothing to be sniffed at.
1: It's not, it's, but...
0: It's parenting.
1: It is parenting, <laughs> but... And this was a, the breakthrough moment. So I, I, I had some frustration with my hot composter at the start because I, you know, I emptied it the first time and this kind of measly amount of, admittedly, very nice-looking compost, mm. but m- measly amount came out. And I thought, well, I not, I can't do anything with that. No. You know. Um, and then I met... Uh, So I was giving a talk somewhere, and and I happened to talk about hot composting, and this woman came up to me afterwards, and she said, what you need to do with your hot composter is this. Don't treat it as um, the means to an end. Treat it as the beginning of the process. So use your hot composter for composting down all the things you can't put in your compost heap, and then take the compost out and use it as an accelerant in your compost heap. Oh, my God. And she said, the moment you do that... yeah." The moment you do that, it's a game changer because what you then have is this amazing like hot composted waste that you chuck in your compost heap and it accelerates the process of your normal compost
0: That is what you call a tip. Yeah. So and and you can get rid of all your food with all your your cook waste. That's really amazing because you can put like you can put meat and Yeah, and and all all our paper gets
1: shredded and go in there and and cardboard and all sorts of stuff. Yeah.
0: I just want to talk about landscape man because I need to talk about telly because Uh it's uh telly telly gardening telly, yeah. and and uh and 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 what we get from that yeah but landscape man in particular it had me captivated it was 2009 it was 10
1: years ago 10 years ago 10 years ago yeah
0: um and yeah it didn't doesn't seem like 10 years ago no that was your your own show it was. that was My your own first show. telly and it was your own show yeah how would you angle that darling
1: well, I did a screen test. Oh, and I, I and I, Yeah, I did a screen test. And I, and, I, and I was asked what is important about gardening. And I, I mentioned a number of the things that I've spoken about um, today. Mm. But I also told a story, um, a true story, um, about when I, my time at Hyde Hall, about um, there, there was a, a, tr- a, a crabapple tree, a lovely crabapple tree, which died and we had to fell this tree and remove it and a few weeks later i was in the garden and this elderly man came marching across the garden absolutely boiling with rage and started to accost me about the felling of this tree with absolute you know i mean almost hysterical rage and eventually he he calmed down and we i got to the bottom of why he was so angry and it was the tree that he and his late wife used to sit under and picnic every time they came oh, to the garden. That's
0: desperately upsetting, yeah. yeah. And that
1: connection between people and plants, which I've mentioned a few times, mm-hmm. is, I think, what it sets gardens and gardening apart. You know, it, 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 it's something that connects to our soul, um, uh, and and you know has the capacity to make us feel better, different, happier, rewarded you know, connects us with art, science, nature, colour, architecture, uh the you know, climate, weather, all sorts of stuff. It's brilliant. It's an amazing thing, um, gardening gardens, just incredible. Um and I, I maybe I, I put some of that across um in the screen test and I to my astonishment, got the gig, and we had a wonderful year filming it. Um, and unfortunately, at the end of the year, we started filming a second series, and they pulled the plug.
0: Well, I thought it Cost was an too much incredibly money. interesting watch because mm. it was actually quite a stressful watch. Yes. <laughs> I thought, I because presumably, the co- constraints of TV and the time schedules, yeah. very different from what you'd normally have if you were just doing those projects without um, yep. a television crew breathing down your neck yep. that must have been quite a thing to kind of uh i don't know how you, how, how you call it make chivvy these people on to keep going yes under and, that and amount and we, of stress
1: yeah and we did have to chivvy and ultimately at the end you know the 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 the, the, the two teams that worked on it the two uh, camera crews and sound guys and producers got amazing stuff you know, from those gardens, <gasps> often using some quite clever camera angles because yeah. they, were, they were still new gardens.
0: Well, that's the thing. I mean, how can you show... It's not like a cooking show. You can't and show... And it's not like Grand Designs. It's all Grand Designs. It's, it, you need at least 5, 10, 15 years, yeah. don't you?
1: You do. And I think that, that is one of the ongoing... Uh, it, 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 it's, a part, it, it's the ongoing challenge of, of anyone wanting to make an interesting gardening TV I think there's lots of potentially really interesting gardening TV programs that um, like haven't been made. <laughs> um, uh,
0: well I, th- I think oh, that haven't been made so they haven't guess. been made okay. yeah well I think I think
1: you know I think there's a there's a there's a great you know there's so many characters involved in gardening and, yeah. and there's so many people who make gardens for different reasons, create amazing spaces for different reasons. And I think I think too often TV is looking for a format to wedge things into, whereas actually, you know, one of, for me, one of the most uh, rewarding bits of gardening TV was that the wonderful two series that Christine Walton did about her oh, garden.
0: That was incredible. Which
1: incredible was literally, which was described by um, the director at the time as as an hour of nothing happening, oh, or half an hour of nothing happening. And it was true, it was, You know, apart from her chatting to her next-door neighbor and having a, potting, a potter around, there was no drama, there was no false jeopardy, but there was no... it was pure no, joy. Hey, joy. You know, Christine not saying, oh, oh I'm sowing these leaks now, but I've no idea if they're going to come up. <laughs> you no, know, that didn't happen. <laughs> That didn't happen. There was no forced jet. It was her. just, yeah, I love her. Although she's quite loud when you sit next to her on Gardener's Question Time, and she goes into one of her, you know, upper registers. You know, big, <laughs> big Lancashire moment. a, it's you know. called
0: passion, darling. It is passion. So
1: I think I think I would. Lo- I, th- I think there's an opportunity to make really just a very simple program about the reason why people make make their gardens. You know what? Yeah. What what motivates them? The character yeah. behind those people. And of
0: course, Telly loves loves nothing more than an emotional journey. Oh, them. love an emotional <laughs> journey!
1: I can I can almost I could script you a uh, yeah I could script you that the the uh, the closing moments right now. Do I just you, wonder if they will you know. So it always starts with I just wonder if, <laughs> I
0: just wonder if <laughs> they so know what they've it. got into.
1: I just wonder if. Anyway, yeah.
0: do you get how much time do you get in your own garden? I mean, people are always um, keen to know.
1: Uh, um, well, it's full of unfinished projects, um, much so to my, much my, my wife's chagrin. So I, I, I've designed my garden so it's quite easy to look after. Mm. It's full of plants. And people say, well, how can you have a garden full of plants and it be easy to look after? And actually, the fact that it's full of plants is why it's easy to look after. Mm. Because if, they get, if you get the planting density right, the plants cover the soil and there's no way you can get weeds. No. You know, bare earth yes. is, is anathema to any good garden because bare earth is a seed bed for weeds. So that's the way I look at it. So it's stuffed full of plants. It is very plant. I I use it as a bit of a laboratory. I I experiment with different planting combinations, which I then you know might use, you use in, in your work. In, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. And I really like that side of it. Mm-hmm. And I've I've just really in the last we've been there for five years. It's really only in the last year that I've made new beds that haven't been influenced by the plants that were already there. Right. You know, where I've yeah. really kind of gone, uh, and also where I've actually said, I'm going to buy the plants for this bed, rather than, you know, scramp, scrimping stuff together yeah. from around the garden and yeah. lifting and dividing. I've actually said, no, do you know what, I'm going to design this properly and do it properly. And, um, and it's been great. So I don't get enough time, as much time as I would like. So but how when much I, time is that? Uh, maybe a couple of hours a week, if I'm Gosh, lucky. yeah. You know, more in the summer. Um, this time of year, I, this time of year, it's all about trying to finish the projects that I haven't finished in order to keep my marriage going for another year or so. <laughs> There's various dry stone Always walls a good that need to idea be built. There's all manner of stuff. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I've got a few questions. I put a call out for some yeah. questions. Well. If mm. anyone has some very very tricky questions, the trickier the better, you can yeah. ask them. But I'm just going to start off with um, this one. There's one guy who said, I need a gardener. How much should I be paying a gardener? Oh, I think that's very <clears throat> important because I think a lot of people think that um, a gardener is someone who should be, quite pay- be paid quite a low wage.
1: Well, they would be wrong. Um, because um, there's... Well, first of all, what is a gardener? Is a gardener somebody who walks backwards and forwards with a lawnmower? No, that's somebody who's mowing your lawn. Um, a gardener is somebody who, 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 who would be able to identify plants, who would know how to correctly prune something, who might have a, an understanding of pests and diseases and so mm. on. They'd have a, a rounded, and that doesn't necessarily have to come from a college education, by the way. That could be stuff that they've actually yeah. learned along, along the way. But they would, they would be able to be horticulturally minded in a garden. Mm. And the cost of that, well, um, in London, Right. £30 an hour, £35 an hour, maybe. Um, outside of London, £20 an hour, £18 an hour, something right. like that. Um, so there I would you say, go. <coughs> well, yeah. Benchmark, you know. yeah. Well, I, you know, I used to run a business in London and part of our, our, our business was maintaining gardens. And a two-man crew in a van, I think, you know, the charge-out was something like 60 quid an hour. Right, um, yeah, of course. And, you know, partly because, you know, we had jobs in London where... Um, the guys could never park, so one guy would just drive around in the van for an hour while the other guy did the gardening. Ridiculous. <laughs> anyway,
0: okay. but
1: you know, do you know what I would say? Pay what you, uh, you, you. If you're if you're employing a professional person, you should you need to pay. You know, how much do you pay a plumber for God's sake?
0: A lot. Of a money. lot of money, oh right? My God, they're
1: yeah.
0: eye wateringly expensive. Pay plumbers. gardeners more. Th- because they've got you in a in a bind. Yeah. The thing is with a garden is that you could just leave it. That's the thing. And people do. It's not do. like, it, you know, if you don't leave it, then your house is full of poo, which is what <laughs> That's <happens>. true. <laughs> That's anyway, true. sorry. I'll carry on. Your favourite evergreen low growers for tricky areas?
1: Evergreen low ground growers? Co- oh, ground cover. cover. Ground cover. Okay. Well, um, we mentioned ferns, and obviously some ferns behave slightly evergreen or fully evergreen, mm. like the holly fern. There are others. Um uh, what else i mean i know it's a bit dull maybe but it's it's great no, cuz it's dull glossy is good. pakistan is... terminalis okay. cuz nice glossy leaves vinca minor miss, uh, gertrude jical miss jical i think Vinker it is nothing forever. wrong with vinca yeah i mean nothing it's wrong fine. people vinca. get sniffy about it. I, you know when people say oh i can't grow anything here i i'd just try vinca
0: and if it gets too much just pull it out yeah. you do have a hand yeah pull um, it out.
1: epimedium
0: Oh, lovely Oh, oh
1: well, that's not evergreen though but I mean but well, it's, it's beautiful. it is in London yeah. it's quite lovely. my dad used to call them happy mediums
0: oh that's lovely yeah. um, so grasses there was yeah. this question on grasses um, and I think it's very confusing grasses how right. do you tell all these amazing perennial grasses yeah. have you got an easy way to tell them apart and you know which, which one's your favourite tell us your favourites okay.
1: Well, I can tell you, I can tell you how you identify a grass from a sedge, from a rush.
0: Okay, talk to So
1: me. really, it's a good, it's a little rhyme, which is quite nice. We love
0: a rhyme. Which
1: is uh, because obviously, you know, things like uh, Luzula nivea, which is a very lovely, glamorous sedge mm-hmm. with white flowers. Sedges have edges. Sedges have edges. Yeah. Rushes like Juncus effusus mm-hmm. yeah, or um, Equisetum hymali, uh Rushes around. So sedges have edges, rushes rushes around,
0: around. around.
1: grasses have keels that go down to the ground. They have a little
0: seam on the back of the leaf.
1: Sedges have edges, rushes around, grasses have keels that go down to the ground. Brilliant. Boom. That's all
0: we need to know. (laughs) Boom, boom. Um, Um,
1: So, favourite ones. Yes. Um, I I mean, I love grasses. There's... Obviously, there's some grasses you have to be very careful or, careful with. The, the, the classic one being the pampas grass. Oh yes. If you put that in your front garden, <laughs> you may have people knocking on your door when you don't want them to, it's because it's supposed to be that you're advertising wife swapping. <laughs> um, uh, so very popular in the '60s, those ones. Anyway, I um, but where there's that a, came from. I don't know. There's a very <laughs> glamorous pampas grass, so called the toy toy, which is a New Zealand pampas, uh-huh. pampas grass. Uh, Cortaderia richardii. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a lovely thing. Flowers early rather than late in the season. Yeah. So it flowers in in uh, June, July, and has these very graceful flowers. It um, beautiful. I, it's really lovely. Yeah. I love miscanthus. I love Calamagrostis brachytricha. Not the, an easy name, but it's a really lovely late flowering grass. The uh, I think it's called the purple f- or the feather reed grass. Korean. Okay. Um, I'll put all of these in the show notes. Yes, yeah. I mean there's just mine. there's there's so many good grasses, and as a component of a border, I think grasses borders just you know just grasses not my bag. But grasses with flowering so plants. So glad you said lovely. that. Lovely. No, I mean, it's not my thing. But <laughs> I think if you use them in a mixture, they have they they have texture and movement and longevity. Yes. And you know, late season, I was this morning. I was looking at my millennia sky racer, which I've got planted very, very close to the house. And you, look, you look through a window at it, it's six foot tall, but it, it is you know almost transparent. And oh, at this God. time of year, it's golden yellow, beautiful.
0: Beautiful, that's what you mean. Yeah. Okay, last one. This lady says she's got mold on some of her bulbs, oh, they've been sent her, they're expensive, yeah. big alliums, <clears throat> yeah. they've got sort of bits patches of yeah. mold
1: well it often happens she them? Uh, yes she does she I mean does? It, it happens late, particularly later on in the season mm. you know they've been in boxes or bags for a while but they're normally perfectly fine and uh, of course you know if you want to go bargain hunting the later it gets in the bulb season the price of the bulbs come down you don't get the, the variety of course mm. but you can pick up some really nifty bargains so yeah I would always plant a bulb even if it looks like it's not going to make it I'd still stick it in the ground because you've got nothing to I lose I agree
0: yeah. Um anyone got any questions for Matthew before I completely wrap up? Yes, go. I've on. got
1: a tricky one for
0: you. Okay, good.
1: Um, I work at a place called Hortica, which you were yeah. kind of special advisor. Um, and I work with adults with learning difficulties. It's all about um, the feel and the touch and the smell of plants for them. So if there was one plant that would cover all five senses. Okay, I'm just going to repeat that just in
0: case they didn't hear. One plant covering all five senses for a sort of sensual experience.
1: Mm, gosh. That, that, is, is that is a tricky question. And also, just a quick plug for HortiCap in Harrogate, who do fantastic work with people with a range of different needs and, and abilities and uh, also make some fantastic gardens at Harrogate Flower Show. Um, so big up HortiCap! Big up, um, yeah. One plant that does all of those things. That is a really nasty question. <laughs> um, I, Come on, yeah, me too. Okay, or three. so look. I, but what you want? I tell you. I'm, all right. Really, it's a really bog standardish plant, but it's a great plant. You know, good old lavender, because <gasps> yes. you can touch it and it feels interesting to touch because it's exuding those essential oils. Your hand smells lovely afterwards. Obviously, the foliage smells great. The flower looks lovely. It attracts pollinating insects, so you get the activity of the insects coming in and out of it. You can cut the flower, of course, and and stick it in your, your pillow or hang it or put it in the wardrobe. In fact, I love cutting it and hanging it in the wardrobe. That's always a lovely thing to do. And it's actually a great... It's a really underrated structural plant during winter, especially if you plant... One of the things I like to do is I like to plant it with um cloud pruned yew because one tends not to use box these days because of box blight um and if you have the dark green of you and then clouds of silver lavender clipped into domes in winter
0: oh it's lovely that sounds perfection wonderful. it's really good and just very quickly how often would you replace lavender
1: Uh Well, so I got into terrible trouble many years ago. I wrote a feature for for one of the the, uh, national newspapers about lavender, and the premise of the feature was that lavender is short-lived. Mm. Which I think is a fair thing to say.
0: Definitely short-lived.
1: I got quite the post bag from that. <laughs> uh, the first letter <laughs> I opened was uh, it, um, it was from a lovely lady in West London. She said, "Dear sir, um, I enclose a photograph of my uh, lavender <laughs> in my front garden, uh, planted by my late husband, uh, Wing Commander Smithers, who planted it <laughs> on his uh, on the day the Battle of Britain finished." Oh, um, God, that's <laughs> wonderful. Uh, Thought you'd like to see it. it's in rude health. Um, like, oh, anyway, but I learned some important things about that, uh, about lavender as a consequence of writing that, that feature. Um, because somebody from uh, Norfolk Lavender got in touch with me and said, um, you, you, you should revise your advice on lavender in terms of pruning. You, lavender should be pruned in August. Right, once. A lot of, once, yeah. So a lot of people think it should be pruned twice. It should be pruned in... I prune it twice. Yeah, no, it should be pruned once okay. in August. Corrected. Um And it should be pruned while it's still in flower, and the reason for that, yes. But then you gather the flowers. But the reason for that is, is because lavender forms its flowers for next year. The flower buds form very early. And if you, um, if you don't prune them off, then they'll, they'll form and they'll stay on the plant and then the following year they'll come into flower. If you prune them, they have to work even harder in spring to produce the flower buds all over again right. that you've cut, cut off, right? Um, so what happens by doing that is you're constantly weakening the plant, and this is part of the reason why people think that lavender are short-lived, because they behave like that because we abuse them, basically. Okay. The other thing I would say about lavender is it's, you know they're plants that need eight hours of sunshine a day in summer, and too often people plant them in little shady corners and wonder yeah. why they don't do very well.
0: Okay, well, I'm not taking that advice because hashtag bees. Yeah, um, but, uh, but thank you so much, Kamati, might been a pleasure. for being the best guest ever. And thank you very, very much for being the most brilliant audience. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Thank you, my darlings, for taking the time to listen to the Virgin Gardener podcast. Uh, if you liked it, then maybe subscribe and leave a five-star review. If you didn't like it, maybe you'll like another episode Uh, if you don't like it at all don't do anything okay (laughs) thanks Uh, you can find me on my blog latitiamcleaf.com or via my instagram or twitter at latitiamcleaf until then i'm sending you all the good things